0: Welcome to the Period Story Podcast. The podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Laniece Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, The book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. We are back. Season 7 of the podcast is here, and I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode. It's Endometriosis Awareness Month, and I'm so pleased to share my conversation with Carla Cressy, who is the founder and CEO of the Endometriosis Foundation. Carla is a true force in the endometriosis community. She spends her time helping others gain access to care and support, and she also does advocacy work to provide insight into the development of national health guidelines around endometriosis. Hi, Carla. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I love the work that you're doing, and I'm so thrilled to be able to learn more about your story and learn more about the work that you're doing with the Endometriosis Foundation. Let's start off with a question that I ask every guest, which is, tell me the story of your very first period.
1: Oh gosh, now we got to think back. Um, okay, so I was... I was year eight. I was one of the youngest in my year. So I think I was 13. Um, funny enough, I was actually in my lesson of scope, which was sex education. And I remember having this horrendous pain. Um, and I looked down and there was blood on my chair. So I literally started my period then and in there and um, grabbed my friend, Holly, who was sat next to me, ran to the office, got some sanitary towels, clean myself up. Um, and kind of, that was that. Uh, and Yeah, I just, you know, I've got three sisters, so I was kind of quite prepared and kind of knew what to expect and things. Um, But my periods were never quite normal. Uh, They would actually come every two weeks from the off, Uh, something that we really thought would just kind of settle down over time. Um, But what didn't settle down was this horrendous pain. I just had this awful kind of crippling pain that would just see me on on all fours. Like I just, it just wouldn't it wasn't getting better and I was pretty much straight away kind of seeing my GP and saying, you know, this isn't, I was already kind of there for these irregular periods. Um, but for this pain as well, like that wasn't, that wasn't normal. My mum was quite concerned kind of early on about this kind of pain and, um, these two periods a month which was just a bit of a nightmare um so yeah I just my first period it wasn't really a great experience to be honest because it just wasn't something that ever settled down it was something that I was just continuously it was just a huge burden and you know quite an annoyance in in my life at the time um so yeah I just seemed to feel like I was always always bleeding never really catching catching a break um Funny enough, I actually had something they call a false menses as well. So when I was just a few days old, um, my mum, she was changing my nappy and she noticed that there was I was having a period. Um, and I remember she well, she was telling me about how she was freaking out and calling the doctor and the midwife. And um, I don't know how common that is, but um, I don't think it's very common. Um, so, yeah, I also experienced a false menses as well.
0: <laughs> wow. So you you started your period at 13 in school quite heavy education wow the irony (laughs) (laughs) and it was heavy from the very beginning it wasn't so much heavy it was
1: just that I didn't really have like clots and things like that it was just it was just continuous Mm. it wasn't heavy heavy bleeding uh, it just seemed to feel like it was never stopping and I'd have quite long periods as well. So I would bleed for maybe seven to nine days, whereas my sisters would bleed like three days or four days, you know. Um, so it was quite kind of obvious to begin with that something wasn't quite right. Um, but of course, you're young and you've just started your period. Things are not going to be, you know, as always, perfect from the, from the, from the off you know, from the get go. So it was something that, you know, we just thought maybe it was settled down and, you know, we'll see how things go, but it just never, ever (laughs) settled down. It just, just continued and, and actually eventually
0: progressed into
1: something a lot worse.
0: So So seven to nine day periods every two weeks and was it, was it painful the entire time?
1: Yeah. And the, and the pain would actually start before the bleeding would start. So I would have this horrendous kind of rectal pain to the point where I could be just walking and talking and all of a sudden I'm just stopped in my tracks and it just felt like I actually call it the hot poker pain. Mm. It just it was just excruciating, but it was constant. It wasn't something that was going away. So I just knew, okay, this isn't right. And then at the same time, you'd also get the frontal pain as well. So it was just kind of this big, Oh, it was just a bit of a nightmare, really. I just went 13 to 14, especially kind of constantly back and forth to the GP. I'd lost ibuprofen. I was asthmatic as well. I'd had asthma from a baby. So having a lot of kind of NSAIDs would trigger my asthma and I was on all these pumps. And, oh, it was just, yeah, it was just a nuisance really.
0: Yeah. And it's quite young to be dealing with all of this. Although, you know, we think, oh, 13 to 14, it's it's a teenager. But, you know, thinking like in the grand scheme of things, having to carry this burden of long periods, frequent periods, very painful periods. It's a it's a lot, and I'm just curious. How did the school deal with this, or how did they help you deal with this? So the school were very much aware because I did spend a lot of time. We had
1: like a little room next to our school office, and we'd always have a nurse there, and she was quite. I would always she'd be, oh my god, you're back again, like you know, because I would I wouldn't I wouldn't at the time I didn't know that this was a regular thing, so I wouldn't always be prepared to start bleeding again when I just a week before had a period Mm. so I'd often be down there like oh my god I'm bleeding again and they were quite um I mean they were there they weren't kind of involved or asking questions or you know showing any concern but they were there to help me and give me pants when I needed them and you know um but yeah I mean
0: it was when I think back now like just to have to deal with that. that. That was a lot, you know? Yeah. And then what about your doctor? So you mentioned very frequent trips, lots of ibuprofen, mm-hmm. then couple of that with, you know, the effect that that would have on your asthma, you know, what the, were the conversations like with the doctor?
1: So the doctor, I think they were quite good. I mean, I was four. I just turned 14 when they prescribed me my first hormone pill. Um, before I was ever sexually active, this was predominantly to help my periods, to try and help my periods. Um, And they were, they seemed concerned. I think my mum was more concerned, to be honest, because obviously I'd had, I had three sisters so my mum was quite used to periods and, you know, she knew that something wasn't, wasn't right. Um, And actually I look back on my doctor's notes and in 2004, I think I was 14 or 13, she, my doctor had noted um, and it says, mum worried there's an underlying issue. So my mum was very much kind of pushing for help with the doctors and they would kind of do these kind of pelvic exam, not internally, but, you know, feeling of my abdomen and um, yeah, they didn't really seem too worried. And it, I mean, I was still fairly young and, you know, it only really been a year into my period. So it was just something that we kind of told, you know, it might, it might settle down. Let's just give it time. Um, but then when it got to that one year mark and the pain was getting worse, um, and I started to have like a sickness episode. So I started to become quite sick with the pain and kind of uh, fainting a lot as well. So that's when they kind of decided to intervene with the, with the hormone therapy side. Um, but I mean, after a couple of months, I started getting acne and migraines, and it wasn't it wasn't nice. Um, and they decided to send me to see a gynaecologist. So I saw a gynaecologist when I was fourteen, uh, which was quite scary. I had a internal scan, um, and they just said everything was normal, it's fine, and just kind of sent me back to the GP. Um, and then, but by this point, the pain was was pretty intense. It was pretty severe. Days off school um never able to do PE. Uh so yeah, it was um it's quite uh it was quite a big thing, my periods. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind yeah. of talked about a lot in the household. Um yeah, it just didn't it just didn't get better. By the time actually I reached 17, I had tried seven different hormone pills and they just weren't working. Nothing was working. I kind of just bleed through the pills like I wasn't even taking them.
0: Um yeah, it just didn't seem to help at all. What really I find kind of really surprising, I find it surprising and not surprising given everything I know about you know the way that some doctors can be, is that you had this severe period pain that caused you to miss school. Frequent periods. You went to the gynecologist. They did a scan and ultrasound, I assume, and then they said everything was normal when everything was clearly not normal. Um, And I just feel a bit indignant on your behalf as like, you know, a young teenager having to deal with all of this. How did you go back to that gynecologist? What was the kind of pathway that you were going through, through the medical system when all of this was happening?
1: So something I found really difficult, I think, was once you get that, referral to a gynecologist I mean nowadays it's really difficult to get that referral just to go and see a gynecologist but once I'd had that referral and was told that everything was okay to get back past the GP to the gynecologist was so difficult like the most it was just the biggest fight and it kind of went on into my early 20s because they'd say you know you've had these same problems for years gynecologist said it was okay like just kind of you know persevere with the hormone treatments and whatever else so it was so difficult it actually kind of built this barrier in between like going to the gp and then seeking out for referral for extra help so yeah it just made things so much harder and by kind of 16 17 It was obvious I was getting ovarian cysts. My stomach would extend or just extend on one side. I'd have this severe crippling pain. I couldn't move off the sofa. Um, And my mom would be like, right, you know, back to the GP. And they just weren't interested in kind of sending me any further than the GP. So they would just give me, you know, methanamic acid, transamic acid and everything else, all the kind of usual medications that they would give to a teenager with you know prolonged periods and and painful periods um but yeah they just didn't seem to want to push or just let me through it was re- it was really difficult really difficult
0: and while all of this was happening and you were trying to go down a medical route were you doing any other research on the side to try to figure out what was going on or? You know, yeah. What- I mean, I was
1: still fairly young. So I think I was a little bit um, naive to just believing these doctors, you know, okay, and everything's fine. I'm going to be okay. Like this is normal for me. They would say to me, this is your normal, you know, everyone is different and this is your normal and you're going to have to kind of suck it up basically. Um so, yeah, for I just thought, okay, well, this is my normal. So I think it was probably when I was kind of 20, 21, 22, and I got into my first kind of serious relationship, and just having somebody else there to see these kind of periods and these episodes and these patterns was when I started to think, okay, like maybe this is – and, I mean, by by this point, I'd kind of got to a stage where with GPs – where I'd kind of given up a little bit because I would go and I'd just be faced with the same, you know, this is your normal, you know, suck it up and, you know, periods are meant to be painful. They're not a be like, they're not a nice thing, you know. So I was just kind of a little bit uh, just done with to keep going to the GP. I just felt like a nuisance. I felt like a I was just pestering them, you know. So mm. it just got to that stage where I just thought oh, I'm just not I'm just not gonna gonna bother going. I'm just gonna kind of deal with this as much as I can at home. And once I was kind of sexually active and I started to experience this horrendous pain during sex and bleeding during sex and then after sex, just this I would just be in tears with pain. That's when I thought, okay, this isn't this isn't right. Um, so again I was kind of back and forth and I've changed GPs at this point as well because I moved town. So this was a totally new kind of gp practice and it was a lot different to my kind of gp practice growing up where there was like four or five different gps in this practice that i could see so i would never see the same kind of gp twice so if anything thinking back you would think that actually this could be a positive you know but it was just horrendous I i just couldn't get past them to see a gynecologist i couldn't get a referral um and once, as I said, once I started to have these kind of other symptoms starting to progress, I started to research. I started to look in, you know, look on Google, like what what is this? That was typing with my symptoms. And at that time, I mean, this was 10 years ago now, endometriosis, it wasn't anywhere to be seen on, on the internet. And all these symptoms were kind of pointing to cervical cancer. You know, this pelvic pain, this irregular bleeding, pain during sex. These are all very common or known signs of cervical cancer. So I thought, well, that that's exactly what I have. You know, this is what I've had for years. Uh, so I went to the GP and I said, you know, I have all of these symptoms. As you know, I mean, I couldn't, I've lost count how many different hormone pills I tried by this point. And I say, I want to have a, I want want a smear test. I was 21. I said, I need to have a smear test because I started to, you know, you worry, you panic. And they said, well, you know, we agree you do have these symptoms, but you are very young. So there's a chance that we can send the smear test to the lab, but it could be refused because of your age. And it was refused three times. (laughs) So I never got to have a smear test. And my boyfriend at the time, he'd come along to appointments and he'd get a little bit kind of, Annoyed with the GP because you know there was clearly something not not right. Um, but yeah, they just they just didn't really seem too bothered by you know you're young, don't worry about this, don't worry about fertility. You know you've got plenty of time on your hands. Um, so yeah, it just it was just um, I just kind of gave
0: up. I just literally I just gave up. It was um, it was tough. I I just find it so stunning when you know you have if it was any other sort of pain you know if you were going to the doctor and you were saying every or the dentist saying you know I'm getting this constant pain in my tooth they would say okay you know we need to have a look at it but because periods are no pain is normalized messiness is normalized they were like well that I've just so stunned that you saw all of those doctors and they said well that's your normal when any other pain wouldn't be treated differently I, I just i very feel very indignant on your on your behalf It's just what i find really interesting though is that you and i've heard this with other from other women with endometriosis is that when they've taken their partners with them to the gp they've actually their male partners they've actually had a better response from the GPs. The GPs have been more receptive to listening and taking the concerns more seriously. Did you find that with um when you took your boyfriend at the time?
1: No, I mean we we, we didn't
0: get anywhere. So no. Yeah. Okay. And so then you, you, you had changed GPs, you had, you know, you had this boyfriend who was From the sounds of it, very supportive, wanted to help you figure out what was going on. How did you find, what was the impact of the, what we now know as endometriosis on your life? You know, early twenties, you're trying to figure out who you are. You're in this relationship. What was it? the impact on your day-to-day life?
1: It was tough. I worked for a company from kind of 17 to 21, um, and I did end up leaving. I wasn't wasn't treated unfairly. They were actually really supportive, and they knew something was, you know, we had quite a good supportive little team there. They knew something wasn't quite right, but we didn't quite know what it was, so I was continuously kind of back and forth to the doctor having time off. And in the end, I felt so unreliable because I just, I wouldn't know when I was due on a period. And I knew at this point, kind of age 20, 21, these periods would mean that I would be in bed for three or four, three or four days at a time, um, with this pain and sickness and dizziness and passing out. So I left that job and I went into another job and it was kind of around that, that time my, my relationship broke down. Um, and it was around that time in that job that things just really progressed, um, i every week I was found passed out. I was passing out in the street. I was waking up and people would be around me, picking me up off the floor. It just become quite a nightmare. And I remember that the workplace, they called me into the office and they I kept going to the GP and I started to get the bowel symptoms. So because of my bowel symptoms, I was just being told it was IBS. So I would kind of be sent home from work, go and see the GP, explain everything that was kind of happening, you know, discuss the periods, discuss the bowel symptoms. They never really linked them, but I was always, I kept, I remember I would told them, you know, this is worse when I'm bleeding. This is always worse when I'm bleeding they just didn't seem to listen to that and there wasn't anyone kind of there piecing piecing symptoms together. So I would just be told, you know, you it's IBS, it's IBS. So I'd go back to work and I'd say, oh, it's IBS. And I was actually, I remember at the time, I mean, at this, I was kind of 22, 23, kind of reaching 24 at this point. I was a bit embarrassed to say that all this kind of commotion and all this, you know, drama was caused by IBS. I didn't really know much about IBS, and I I just remember feeling like silly to go back and say, oh, it's just, it's just IBS. Cause that's what they would say. It's just IBS. Um, and I was kind of told, you know, maybe you, you're best not working here. So I was asked to resign, which I did. Um, and yeah, it just took such an impact. And I, I, I went into modeling. My parents put me into modeling when I was kind of seven or eight. So I'd modeled up until I was 17. Um, and by, by that point, I just remember I would be on set or be on shoots, having on a hair and makeup and I would just be passing out. <laughs> and I just knew at that point, you know, I just, I can't continue with this. I can't, I'm not reliable. I can't, you know, I can't go forward with this. So it did take, you know, it did have a huge kind of impact, especially in my teenage years, mm. but also kind of early twenties in that kind of stage of not knowing what was wrong, but something was quite terribly wrong. Um, I think when I reached kind of twenty three was when things just turned up a notch, and these symptoms were debilitating um, to the point where I was kind of being taken to hospital by ambulance, um, just constantly in and out of the hospital with what was um, what they would say was oh, what did they call it a lazy bowel syndrome? So my bow would just stop working, um, and I'd lost loads and loads of weight i was quite slim anyway um but i just couldn't really eat very much i couldn't kind of feeling full would be really painful going to the toilet was painful and near enough impossible um lots of vomiting and i just remember i was just back and forward to the g i was really really unwell you know when when your bowel is affected by i later found out my bowel was affected by endometriosis but when you're suffering these bowel symptoms it it affects every part of your body, you know, from your sleep to your skin, you know, to, you know, your, your emotional kind of health, every, everything. So I was just went through this two, three years of being really, really poorly and nobody really kind of giving me good enough answers. And I just wasn't settling for your bowels lazy. Like I wasn't yeah. settling. For that. I'd never had a lazy bow. I'd always been regular. I'd always kind of ate well. So I knew that, it wasn't that. And I knew it wasn't IBS because I could, I would kind of skim through all these, you know, causes of IBS or, you know, what triggers these symptoms. And it wasn't anything I was kind of eating as such that was triggering my symptoms at this time. It was like clockwork. These symptoms would come same time twice a month. Um, And also by this point, my bleeding, I was bleeding for two, two weeks more. And one time I actually bled for eight weeks nonstop and my GP, I remember going to my GP and I was back the whole time during those eight weeks. I was back, back, back. You know, I'm still bleeding. I'm still bleeding. This isn't right. And they, they, she literally said, Are you sure you've been bleeding for this long? Like they didn't believe me. So yeah, I just, <laughs> I kind of just had this kind of relationship with a GP where if I really had to go, then I would go. But at times it just wasn't worth, wasn't worth even sitting in that waiting room and going inside and, you know, being vulnerable and, and sharing these intimate, kind of symptoms because a lot of the time it just felt like they were just kind of thrown
0: back in your face and not really cared about. Yeah. And you just think now like what could have been different if they had just believed you? If they yeah. had just listened to you, taken your concerns seriously and just just believed you?
1: I mean, everything I, I think if I if I was taken serious I mean by the time I was I think 17, I had probably all but one of the common signs of endometriosis. So, If I was diagnosed at 17, which was eight years before I was actually diagnosed, I mean, who knows? Chances are I could have had children by now. I can no longer have children. I may not have ever needed to have a colostomy back. <laughs> um, my bladder reconstructed, you know, this kind of went on so long that the whole time this condition was just progressing and getting worse inside of me. And I... I think I think the hardest part actually is knowing is that I knew for so long something wasn't wasn't right. I think that's what that's the more kind of frustrating, the most frustrating kind of part of it all, because knowing something's not right and constantly, you know, going back and forward and asking for help and just being told, you know, it's normal. It's you know, and that is that's what frustrates me the most, because I think not once did I just say, OK, and and that was it like I was there I was a regular I was a pest I was always always there and always you know trying to get through that door um very, and not just with one GP this was I probably saw a good eight or nine different GPs you know around this time so it wasn't just the one um so yeah I think that's the most I mean I, I think life could potentially be very very different
0: um, yeah yeah it's 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 crazy really If you think back to the below the belt screening, it was last year and, you know, thinking about all of how persistent and, you know, you describe yourself as a pest um, in the best possible way. Um, And I remember on the panel, you know, someone asked this question, you know, how do you get doctors to take you seriously? And one of the doctors on the panel they, she said, "Oh, you've got to be a drama queen. You know, be a drama queen. Keep, you know, be persistent." But then you just think about your experience and how you you did exactly always. that.
1: right it's not always. Yeah. I hear. I often hear doctors now will say, "You know, maybe it takes so long to diagnose because not many people are trying to seek help for it, and people think it's normal." But actually, I know plenty of people with stories so similar to mine. Where they were continuously back and forth to their to their GPs and you know gynecologists, and they just weren't being heard. And I think a lot of the problems lie in that secondary care mm. amongst these kind of healthcare professionals because they just don't, they're just not aware. You know, they may be aware of endometriosis, but they may not understand it. And I remember when I was finally diagnosed, I was in the hospital a lot. At this point, I had bladder symptoms. I was. I couldn't control my bladder. I would, uh, my bowels as well. I couldn't go to the toilet. I was on 12 laxatives a day prescribed just to help me go to the toilet whilst they were figuring out what was going on. I couldn't eat. I went down. I was, I mean, I'd always been like a UK size, like 10 growing up. But at this point, I think I was like in a four to six cloves. I was really just I was just so unwell so it was kind of once things were once I was in the danger zone I was unable to eat and unable to go to the toilet that's when the diagnosis come around but it only really come around because of these bowel symptoms that I was having it I don't think I don't think these period symptoms would have ever been kind of looked into really if if these bowel symptoms didn't start and the bladder symptoms and kind of everything else Um. I also started to get aura migraines Um, I didn't know much about them but I and you can kind of get different forms of them different severities so mine I would kind of collapse I wouldn't be at my sight would go my hearing would go and my face would go numb and I would almost look like I'm fitting so and my friends would think I was having a stroke or something because I and I couldn't feel my tongue I couldn't speak um so that was quite a scary period as well so I had all that going on too Mm. but again kind of That was just unlucky, I think, but no one, you know, there was so much going on, but they only really seemed to be focused on the bowel symptoms. And that's what led to them kind of going inside, doing a laparoscopy and finding out what was going on.
0: So it took all of the bowel symptoms Mm -hmm. for you to finally get a laparoscopy. Um, But at this time, I want to just come back to that in a second, but at this time when, you know, this was kind of like the peak of, all of your symptoms kind of converging and worsening. Were you still living an independent life, or had did you have to move back home?
1: Yeah, so i I was in an another relationship at this point. we We were together three three and a half years. We were living together, and I'd actually trained as a beauty therapist to work from home because I I had I couldn't physically go out to work every day. I just had to do what i could whilst i was at home um so i was kind of managing but and he was incredibly supportive um but it was so tough i remember i would run a scorching hot bath and i would sit in this bath in between my clients just to kind of ease the pain i would scold my back on my abdomen like just all across my tummy um just to kind of relieve this pain i was pain medications like clockwork. Um, but nothing seemed nothing seemed to be to be helping. Um I mean my friends would come over and they would literally would spend a Friday night with them just sitting next to the bath, just talking to me while I'm in the bath because I couldn't physically get away from the heat because as soon as I'd take the heat off, the pain was just there. Like I couldn't seem to find a way to just get a, catch a break from this pain. Um so I was taking him for a laparoscopy and they said that I had stage two endometriosis. Uh, my ovaries were kissing, which is when the ovaries were kind of stuck together by scar tissue. And they said they saw some spots of endometriosis on my bowel, um, but it's nothing to worry about. And I shouldn't think about fertility. I was still so young. And that was it. I was kind of told, that was it, you know, go home. I wasn't given any information and I, I couldn't even say the word endometriosis. I didn't even, you know, I just remember calling my mum saying I've been diagnosed with something beginning with E. I don't really know what it is. Um and yeah that was it I went home and they gave me a report of the surgery they'd done ablation um so yeah they kind of just like lasered off whatever they could see sent me home fitted a coil uh within a week I was still in excruciating pain the symptoms did not go away I was back in the hospital back to the GP something's not right da da da, da, da. and they just kept telling me you know just let things settle down, let the coils settle down. I was just bleeding. I was bleeding quite heavily at this point as well, um, heavier and it just didn't seem to get better. And it was almost like that surgery made me worse. Things were worse after that surgery. Um, so yeah, I just went on for a few more months, still seeing the GP, um, and also a few hospital stints as well with the bowel symptoms and things, but it just wasn't getting better. I was just still exactly the same if not worse and with six months after that surgery I was back in the hospital um I was rushed in with suspected appendicitis even though I told them it's my endometriosis pain I'm so used to this they took my appendix out um realized that it wasn't the appendix causing my pain late a few days later they took me back into surgery and they kind of done like an open surgery and found I had stage four endometriosis and frozen pelvis and they had to, they had to drain. I think it was two and a half liters of like blood from my pelvis. I had a lot of these cysts grow, um, over the, these past few years as well. So I'm, I i do not know what how or what happened there. But that's when they kind of found everything. And so yeah, I don't really know how or what happened with this first initial surgery um, and how they missed so much. But
0: yeah, I just I don't know when you you had that first surgery and then when you went back to have the second, the surgery where they, you know, it was the open surgery, they found that you actually had stage four endometriosis. Were you with different surgeons? Yeah.
1: So the um, first surgery was kind of by my home. Um, That was my local hospital, but I was kind of going in between two local hospitals at the time because Often I'd go to Amy and they would just send me home with morphine and I'd say, okay, great, but that's just going to help for like an hour. <laughs> like this needs to be, you know, investigated. And the GP was still very kind of dismissive and not too kind of interested in helping there. So when I went to go and visit my mom, it was her local hospital that I was sent to and had this kind of bigger surgery. And thank God, because... I was so poorly. I mean, when i when after they took my appendix out, well, before actually they took my appendix out, I think I spent a night or two in there. I, I had septic, I was septic, septic, and I had like, I couldn't stop being sick. So I had tubes kind of up my nose, down my throat, I had tubes everywhere. Um, and I mean, the first thing they thought, obviously, was appendicitis. I had the abdominal pain. Um, but once I took that out, and they decided to go take me back into surgery. I At that point, I was so poorly. I, I mean, there was uh, one time I to my mum, am I, am I going to die? Like, this We didn't know what it was at this point, you know, why am I, like, what's happening? My infection levels were through the roof, and uh, there was a couple of points where it was a little bit touch and go. Was I well enough to go into another surgery, but they had to go, and they wanted to go and, you know, find out what was causing all of this. Um And it got to a stage where this kind of acid that I was bringing up through being sick was so hot. um, I had like kind of thrush around my mouth and my tongue and it it was quite a terrible time. Um, Once they put the tubes down in my nose and down my throat, they were syringing the contents of my stomach through my nose, through the tube in my nose. So we was having to do like daily syringes for this kind of poison, whatever it was. Um, So, yeah, it was quite a dramatic Scary time, and I was kind of aware and awake the whole through the whole kind of ordeal. So it was, um, it was uh something that I never ever want to have to go through again. Um, so once they kind of done that surgery and found how bad it was, uh, they took the coil out because I wasn't working anyway. Um, and they referred me to a specialist hospital in London. I had about a year wait, so in the meantime, they Advised me to call their physio, women's health physio therapy department. And this was in 2016. Um, So actually, not that long, well, a while ago, but not too long ago. And I remember I called them and I said, Oh, I've just been had this surgery over at the main hospital. They've told me to call you. I have uh, stage four endometriosis and frozen pelvis. They've asked me to come and have some physiotherapy just to help me whilst I wait for this referral. And I remember the woman, she said, oh, what, endometriosis? I said, yeah. And she said, oh, we don't do anything for bad periods. And that was that. Um, and then kind of during that time, I had a few kind of pain attacks where I'd go into the A&E at this hospital. I'd stayed with my mum now. And I would get rushed in and all these gynecologists would rush around and I'd say, oh, I have endometriosis. And these, I mean, I appreciate their honesty, but they, would, they actually would say to me and my mum, we don't actually know much about that, <laughs> so it was it was just a crazy moment to think, oh my, like what is this? And it was almost like it was rare. And I know that you mentioned um, one of the articles from the Daily Mail when my story first went out. If you look at all of these articles, it says rare disease, rare illness. Like it was so rare, but it's it's not.
0: It's no, actually- it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: it was just bizarre to know for me to know like how many other people were suffering. Yeah, everybody was like, you know, what is this? It's so rare. You're so young to have this. I'm like, I'm not. Like, it's very common. It was. It was a scary time because the people that I was going to for help couldn't couldn't help me. Didn't know how to help me. So it was. Mm. It was. Yeah. It was. Um. It's just quite
0: a bizarre time. <laughs> yeah, and when you had when you had that open surgery, and they discovered that you had frozen pelvis disease which is where the uterus the bowel the fallopian tubes and the ovaries they're all fused together by mm-hmm. scar tissue did they do any did they separate them did they do anything no, during? So
1: they, i was so I, the bladder and the bowel was also fused as well um so they kind of just drained all the blood and they just kind of left me <laughs> They actually stapled me up, so I had staples, which wasn't wasn't very nice. Um, so they kind of just left me like that and referred me on to a specialist centre. And and I managed. I I went to the specialist centre in 2017, and even then, it was a year wait. Considering how bad things were, it was a year wait to be to be seen. Um, so yeah, I, I I think I spent about four months. In bed, I couldn't move. And because I had the staples, like I couldn't lift anything, I couldn't kind of do anything. And I had those in for a good few weeks as well. So I was just having to, I was prescribed really strong pain medications, morphine and tramadol. And I was just literally stuck in bed. Like
0: it was just the worst (laughs) time. It's just horrible, horrible time. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of all of this on your mental health? Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, I've always tend. I've always been quite proactive in,
1: you know, just being persistent and finding out what is going on. But I think once that happened, I mean, that it almost had an effect later on. So it wasn't until, I mean, in the moment, I was like, you know, right, we're going to do this. Going to put more weight on. We're going to eat. What can I eat? You know, what's gonna? What can I eat? That's not going to make me feel unwell. So I was very like proactive and getting better because I'm t- just to be restrained and stuck like I would literally have to roll out of bed onto the floor, up the wall to stand up. Like it was, it was a lot. So I was just very much focused on getting better um, and just looking into the condition. So I think at that time, I just kind of blocked somehow blocked out my emotions and just delved into research for endometriosis. And that was when I came across the endo March, which was um, started by, um, Professor Cameron Nija and I was kind of invited to Stanford to share my, like I, I was kind of doing all this advocacy work at that time, which probably wasn't the best thing to do, but it was just a, my way, I think, of kind of coping and blocking that out. Um, but later on, I found that I kind of started to develop this panic, panic attacks, severe anxiety over the thought of going into surgery And it wasn't that I was thinking about that operation. It wasn't that I was having flashbacks. It was just I would constantly worry if something's going to go wrong. And then it kind of took over to the point where it even just getting in a car with my friend, I would panic. And I would be very alert in the car. Like I couldn't just relax. And I was just in this kind of constant fight mode. Um, And that's something that I... I'd kind of probably went through the last three, four years. That has been something that's been quite a big part of my life, this kind of anxiety and panic disorder. Um,
0: yeah, it kind of it, it almost it had this effect later on, it mm. seemed. And so we're just thinking about the timeline where you were finally diagnosed, you had had these surgeries, you were then on this wait list to, to then go to a specialist hospital In London. Can you then tell us, you know, where you went from there? You know, what happened, what happened next?
1: Yes. I I mean, I'd never I'd never heard of endometriosis. I never knew a specialist hospital existed. Like this was to me, it was just like a whole new world, you know? And I remember my first appointment was with um Oliver O'Donovan, who's now actually one of the trustees for the foundation. He was so lovely. And I just, I walked into this like waiting room and just met other people that were there for endometriosis. So it was kind of my first time in real person kind of talking to other people with it, which was crazy because I'd felt like I was just this abnormal person for such a long time. Um, And then when I met Ollie... And he, everything I said, he just, he knew, he understood, he'd heard it a hundred million times and it was just like a breath of fresh air. And I remember I had, you know, all the scans and the exams on the day. It was a really long appointment. Um, my mum's with me and I think it's about four, four hours long. So it was quite an intense in appointment. And um, yeah, they kind of scheduled him scheduled me in to have another laparoscopy, but this was one a, a laparoscopy to just go in and take a look to then plan a further surgery with kind of a multidisciplinary team. So I'd have a urologist and a colorectal surgeon, kind of gynecologist all combined. So yeah, I went in, went ahead and I had this surgery with them and the kind of out, what come of that was that it was pretty severe. Um, They couldn't kind of locate one of my ovaries they couldn't locate my fallopian tubes there was so much scar tissue it was all kind of stuck down and twisted and my bowel had double looped and it was twisted and there was kind of deep endometriosis in parts of my bowel my bladder my ureters um so they were at that time they were planning to do this so they i mean fertility for me was something that i was really really kind of stressed out about and Mm. at this after that surgery they said okay so we're going to plan another surgery and I mean it's difficult and this is the problem with with endometriosis that I found you don't always know the outcome what the outcome of the surgery is going to be Mm. and just it's that unknown and that kind of panic and they at the time were planning to go in and remove both of my fallopian tubes and possibly an ovary I had a lot of the Ovarian endometriomas. So my ovaries weren't kind of great, both of them, but one was doing a little bit better than the other. So obviously, with kind of pregnancy or chances of having a biological child, I would then need to go through IVF. So during that time, I went away and I've managed to freeze my eggs. Um, but in that kind of time gap. I was put into a medical menopause, so I came off of the medical menopause um went and froze my eggs, which wasn't great. they couldn't get to one of my ovaries, so we was only working from one, which was the bad ovary, which is just typical um so I froze four um I mean it's not great, it's not many, but you know we only need one so positive um and then I went back to have this surgery but during that during the time after freezing my eggs and then waiting for this surgery i could tell that my symptoms my symptoms that things were progressing Mm. and i was totally home i couldn't work i couldn't do anything um so i kind of went back and i said you know things are progressing i'm now my bladder symptoms were a lot more troubling um i mean they were troubling before but now like i couldn't i couldn't empty my bladder very well or i try and you know go to the toilet and i would kind of go back like three four five times just to have a wee mm. whereas i'd usually have that in one sitting i was going five five six times just to be able to empty my bladder at one time um and my bowel symptoms were they were just horrendous i was living on laxatives softeners daily um by the time i actually went to that specialist center i was managing to eat one crumpet a day that's all i was eating because i couldn't physically eat uh so i was pretty unwell And, um, they kind of done all these scans again, all these tests, MRIs, and they'd found that the, where the endometriosis had gone into the back of my bowel, it fused the bowel to the back of my uterus. So I didn't have adenomyosis, which is, um, kind of of the uterus, but the endometriosis had actually fused and grown through the back of my uterus, which, um, after loads of kind of, you know, investigations and things they were certain that I could not carry a baby to full term and the chances of me miscarrying were very, very, very high. Um, So that's when kind of we had all the multidisciplinary meetings and it was decided that a hysterectomy was the kind of next step and the best step for me. Um, Yeah, that was
0: quite a big change around. (laughs) Yeah. And there's the kind of all the physical changes that are that happened with the hysterectomy and then there's a mental side of it as well and then there's also going into surgical menopause yeah. so it's a lot for you to do with lot,
1: there was a lot kind of going on in a short space of time hmm. by the time I'd had the hysterectomy it was my seventh operation within four years like there was just a, it was just so full on and there was just a lot happening I don't even think I had a moment to think about what was going on because the minute I'd finish a hospital appointment I was getting a new one emailed through to me for the following week or you know like it was just so
0: full on Mm. you went into surgical menopause at 29 so very young and can you just talk a little bit about your experience of surgical menopause, so no longer having a period, which I would imagine for you is was a very positive thing in the sense that there's you no longer had to deal with the pain, the potential anemia, the lack of energy. But then there's the fertility side where there would have been that kind of mourning for not being able to physically carry a child yourself. So can you just talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think um I had a real I'll start with actually the medical menopause cuz I had a real awful experience with that. And it was almost like a love-hate relationship because although I hated the idea of the medication because of the side effects and because of the risks, there was no other medication available and still not that would stop my periods. Um, and it actually I would have to take. I was on Prostap, which is known as lubron in the US. Mm. I would actually switch between Prostap and zolodex. Um, and I would have to take have the injections alongside taking north which is a progesterone, three times a day just to stop my bleeding. And it, and sometimes that wouldn't even stop my bleeding. So I was just constantly, constantly bleeding. So as you said, no energy, feeling so tired and just exhausted and drained and unwell. Um but uh, I had to persevere with that and kind of otherwise I couldn't physically Oh, I couldn't really get out and bed much anyway, but it was just harder to do anything. Mm. Um, and I had terrible symptoms, really quite terrible. I wouldn't just have hot flushes. I would have hot sweats. So I would just be sat there feeling fine one minute and the next I would be dripping. My hair would be going curly where it was just drenched. I would just drip from head to toe. My clothes would be Soaking a hundred times a day, constantly. Um, And I had terrible insomnia. I couldn't sleep. Uh, Just this low, I say low mood. I had no mood. I just felt blank. I Mm. felt like no emotion. Uh, It was just the most, the strangest feeling. I'm really quite a sensitive and emotional person, naturally. So to have this mood where you just don't feel anything. It was quite scary. It was quite a dark place to be. Um, As sleep, the insomnia was crippling. I mean, I, I at one time I went three whole days with no sleep because I just gave up trying to get to sleep. <laughs> it was that bad.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And by the time I'd kind of got my referral to sleep therapy through my GP – I just kind of got some place where I was managing like four or five hours. So I just, I just continued to do work, like mindfulness meditation and all of these amazing things. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was really tough. Um, but I also developed and this is the reason why I think they kind of recommend this treatment for only six months use at a time. I, I ended up taking it for two and a half years. Because I had no other, no other option available in between surgeries and things, um, osteoporosis. So I developed osteoporosis in three parts of my jaw. So it was affecting my teeth, pain. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't nice. So I already had this kind of a, a little bit of anxiety about going into surgical menopause because I was worried that it would be like that. Mm. <laughs> um, but actually, even though surgical medical it's not great it's not nice it's difficult it's hard it hasn't been as bad as what that was so I'm quite happy about that um but as you said it's you know it's a relief not to have periods and also I felt like where everything was left for so long and it took so long to get diagnosed and, it, and things had progressed so badly I always worried about you know the the cervical cancer or a uterine cancer or ovarian cancer you know all of these kind of potential risks risk factors of being a woman um and how toxic things were I always kind of had that uh, that little bit of fear of finding out more further news yeah Um, so when I had my hysterectomy I had a total hysterectomy so they removed every. they actually called it a radical history they called it a pelvic clearance my surgery so they just removed everything um my cervix everything um and it does it does feel as a relief now to know that i don't have to worry now about you know ovarian or cervical uterine or you know these kind of cancers um which is something that did kind of play on my mind when I knew that things were kind of frozen pelvis and there was all this, you know, horrible, horrible things going on in there. So it is quite a relief. And as you said, not to have periods is is lovely. Um, But just with surgical menopause, you then get other symptoms. And I think I'm very grateful for HRT because I wasn't allowed HRT when I was in medical menopause. Um, So that has helped me hugely. And, I've kind of spoken with uh, Dr. Louise Newsom from the Menopause charity a few times, and she's kind of helped guide me and getting my doses right. And my specialist has been great. And he, you know, just kind of lets takes, lets me take the lead and just listens to anything that I need. Or um, So that's been really helpful, but it has, um, I mean, I'm constantly tired brain farts all the time. can't remember half things I'm saying or, you know, go off on a tangent about something and then I forget where I am, but it's just something that I'm kind of getting used to and, you do seem to kind of with the hrt and all of these and you know other kind of coping tools um it does seem to be getting better but yeah it's just been it's been a huge transition it's been a lot so yeah. i'm still kind of finding my way with it and um they're just learning to just kind of manage day to day and understand it a little bit better as well, because I'm not up until, you know, probably quite recently, there wasn't much information or awareness about the menopause or endometriosis. So again, it's really just finding out more about it and just learning as as you go.
0: What I find quite remarkable is that you, you've had this very intense life changing experience Mm -hmm. and you've then gone on to continue the advocacy work that you started for yourself um, on behalf of others in founding the Endometriosis Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about what what drove you to start this charity um, and talk a little bit about the work that the charity does? Yes,
1: yeah, so I... I mean, I never planned to set up a charity. It, it was never something I ever thought I'd ever be doing. Um, and it really started with setting up a support group. Um, at the time, my kind of story had just been shared in the news, and I just found I had all of these people coming like getting in touch with me and they were going through the same, similar or worse, or, you know, I just, I was overwhelmed by how many people were going through this and the struggles and the complexities that they were faced with and the barriers in healthcare. And I just couldn't, it was, as I said, overwhelming just to hear how widespread this problem is and still is. And it was kind of it kind of led from the support group. I started a campaign. So I thought, if I knew about this when I was younger, if I had just sat in a GP surgery, read a leaflet, listing all the symptoms, life could have been so different. Um, so I started a campaign and I raised um, to raise awareness in schools. And it was my local MP, Sir David Amess, um, who sadly passed away last year. Um, who kind of my campaign and waved it around in in parliament. And um, from that, we registered the endometriosis school party parliamentary group. And then about a year later, they included endometriosis in the school curriculum, which is amazing. Um, But still not enough. I feel I feel like we need to do a lot more because it is still so unheard of. And, you know, how many students all you know listen in those lessons you know it's it's mm-hmm. something that I think has such a personal kind of touch to it people really don't and I find people just don't understand unless they are kind of going through it or you know care or are close with someone that's going through it it's so difficult to even fathom what's you know it can just affect every part of your life you know mm. so I then decided i was kind of reaching out to other organizations and just seeing what people were doing and how they were helping and i just didn't see much uh, available i just felt like there just wasn't anything helpful to me other than a support group which was essentially run by people like me who who had it so i just knew that there was this big gap in support and care and this huge kind of gray area that no one was or still no one's filling to really make this kind of change because now that this, I mean, this support group that I set up in, I think it's 2018, it helps like 10,000 people now. And I just, and we see it day in day out people are going through exactly what I went through or what someone else went through. And you just see, it and it's just not getting the awareness is increasing. Yes. But the care it's still, it's still the same. And actually, it's it's probably worse because these waiting lists now are, are heading up to three years long for a waiting list to see as a specialist. And that's just to see the specialist, you know. You, you then have to wait and have MRIs, then you have to wait, and then you have to have MDT meetings, then you wait, and then you have surgery. There's these real long, lengthy kind of waits for treatment. But I remember when I was sent to a specialist hospital, the waiting a year was tough like Mm. I then if I had to wait three years physically I wouldn't have been able to cope and mentally I probably wouldn't be here today so Mm. I think that there's a huge problem there and we need something someone to you know really just champion that and just push for for change so I set up the endometriosis foundation in 2018 um, I was still really, really poorly, so I didn't plan to kind of go forward with a charity or launch the charity or anything like that for a little while. Just wanted to get my surgeries and my health. I had to prioritise my health basically. Um, so we're actually launching in March of this year, um, and our kind of main kind of areas are education, you know, awareness, of course, and campaigning, um, support and also information is a huge area because there's so much misinformation around there's so many kind of false claims that you know pregnancy will fix it a hysterectomy will fix it and just all of these different just wrong information and just this i just find a lot of things a lot of information is contradicting it's confusing and that's like that's that needs to be fixed so yeah we're coming from a of approach where you know we're just starting from the bottom and just we're just going to work our way through and you know hopefully just be there and help as many people as we possibly can.
0: I think what you're doing is amazing and it's so needed and I know you continue to help so many people with endometriosis but also help people learn about endometriosis and that education piece what i'm really curious about is what do you want doctors to know about endometriosis and how do you think they should learn about endometriosis
1: i think that it really because of this this problem it's it's got to have a patient's perspective on it it just it doesn't work just from a textbook you know So I think that just bringing that real life and that real kind of experience in front of them, because a lot of the time, I mean, I've met specialists and they haven't, they're not aware and they're there to consult with me, but they're not actually aware of my history or they're not aware of my symptoms or they know I'm there because I've got, you know, this, that and this listed, but they don't know how that actually affects me. And they don't ask how that affects like they know I'm there and I need surgery that's that's all they kind of need to know. So I think that just kind of educating them and you know just reminding them that we are human beings mm. you know this is our life and actually a 10 minute appointment with a specialist that somebody's waiting up to 3 years for could change their life could deliver them news good or bad life changing news and that appointment is something that's been anticipated and perhaps there's been, you know, a buildup of anxiety or fear or worry, you know, around this appointment for such a long time. And if that patient goes in and feels disappointed or feels like, you know, they just doesn't feel comfortable asking the questions that they're there to ask, that's disappointing. Mm. And this is what I think, you know, especially kind of, in the specialist centers and and things like that i mean it's amazing to have but i think it's just reminding them of you know how precious these appointments are and they're not easy to get you know it's not easy to get that referral so chances are the person that comes through that door has probably been trying to get to that door for you know well seven eight years um and it's just being mindful of that
0: wow i mean i'm I am really so grateful for you sharing your story today, and I know listeners will want to find out more about what you're doing. Where can they find you?
1: Um. So we, our website is the endometriosisfoundation.org um so yeah we have a if they subscribe there so we we've just kind of launched our little blog and things so yeah I mean we're very much in the early stages but we've got some great specialists involved and patients you know it's just it's amazing so we're um we're starting out so yeah it's exciting we can um share our journey with them and just kind of keep in the loop of what we're up to and as you know, we've partnered recently with Parla and Holland yeah. and Barrett. So we're doing an event together yeah. in a few weeks. So that's exciting. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot going on. And it's um it's just so nice to bring also that kind of more um that other approach, you know, with nutrition and mindfulness and all things that I, you know, really love and, and enjoy that have helped me, um, and just bring that to like through the charity to other people, because these things, they're not, these coping tools, they're not taught about, they're not spoken Mm. about, they're not, you know, recommended. These are things that we could be doing from home by ourselves. And, you know, for me, I had to learn the hard way. I had to learn, you know, I I had a quite difficult time learning, you know, what to eat, what I couldn't, not what I could and couldn't eat, but just what, what foods were making me feel unwell and how best to, you know, instead of just not eating at all, which I done a lot of the times because I just couldn't find the energy to f- figure out, you know, well, what can I eat? You know, it was, it was, it, I was already exhausted. I was chasing doctors and it was just draining Um, and just having kind of that area as well, bringing that through the charity. I just think I'm excited for that. I'm just, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Um, I am just so excited to get this episode out out there and for people to learn more about endometriosis. And for someone who's really young, if they're listening or someone who who is a mom to someone who might have endometriosis, to be able to get help early and Mm -hmm. advocate um so thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show uh thank you for having me For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram, and Twitter on at period story pod, or email us at hello at period story pod.com. I'm Linise brothers, and you've been listening to period story. Thank you so much for listening.